Matthew chapter 21, and I'll be reading from verses 1 through to 17. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a, feast, of a beast of a burden. The disciples went and did as had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Well, good morning, everybody. If you've got a Bible with you, it'd be great to have it open at Matthew chapter 21 that was read to us. Um, by Justin a while ago. Um, yeah, I was just struck by uh, a couple of lines in that song. I'm always struck by this song, but I'm struck again today. Um, we praise the King who came to the world in his love like a mighty flood. The interesting thing is we're going to see from our passage today that not everybody did that. In fact, not everybody saw the King or recognised the king, or realised who he was, or what he was here for, and what he had come to do, and the implications of that for them. And so I want to go out on a limb and suggest that it's possible for us to be here today, to sing about him, to even to hear his word, and not see him. And that would be a tragedy, which is why we pray. So let's come and pray and ask God that would open our eyes and illuminate our hearts so that we might see Jesus this morning together. Father, we come this morning. We thank you so much for this opportunity that we've enjoyed already together. We do thank you so much for your word. You haven't left us in the dark. You are the God who speaks, and, and so there's no problem with the communication. Often it's the problem is with our reception. And so we ask, Lord, for your help, for the help of your Holy Spirit, that we might receive your word that we might see Jesus, that we not, might not miss the King who came to the world in his mighty love. 
And we pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing our series in Matthew called The King Who Saves, which will finish next week. Uh, as we arrive at Easter, as we focus on the death of Jesus on Friday and the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday, having prepared ourselves for both on Thursday night at Holy Thursday. And if, you're, uh, if you noticed, uh, if you've been following along with us, perhaps you're thinking this morning, why are we back in chapter 21? We've had five weeks beyond that over the last five weeks, but now we're circling back to chapter 21 of Matthew. Why is that? Well, it's pretty much because that's where Jesus is a week out from the cross. And that's where we are as we head towards Easter, a week out from Easter. Now, there's something interesting to note here that we've, we've had a number of messages. We've been working our way through chapter 21 and following, and we haven't covered everything. And so what you notice is that Matthew devotes a very large part of his gospel to the last week of Jesus' life, as do most of the other gospel writers, which tells you something, doesn't it? It tells you that the last week of Jesus' life in his three years of ministry that they kind of record aspects of must be supremely important to Matthew and the Gospel writers. And therefore, it may well be that it should be pretty important to us. Our passage today is at the beginning of what we call Jesus' Passion Week, where we see the passion of Jesus on display to save sinners like you and me and all that that will mean for him. Uh, the word passion in this context is not like we might often think. Uh, it comes from the Latin word suffering. So this week is the week of Jesus' suffering and it traditionally begins with what we call Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, focusing on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and the crowds that are with him. But interestingly enough, there's some key things that we, we don't initially, they're not immediately obvious in the, in the passage for us, but that are important perhaps for us to know to, to get a bit of a sense of the significance of what go, what's going on here. Firstly, it's the week of Passover when Jesus enters Jerusalem, the most important festival in Israel's calendar to as they remember God's great rescue of them out of slavery, out of Egypt, as they celebrate having been delivered from slavery, from the oppression of a foreign nation. At this point in time, the population of Jew Jerusalem, historians tell us, swelled massively, five, six times more than it would normally be as pilgrims come from every direction to observe Passover. Some historians actually say that it swelled from somewhere around 200,000 to well over a million people in Jerusalem at this time. I wonder, can you picture the scene? I wonder, can you picture, can you picture the caravan parks? They're kind of a bit full. The camping grounds. There's tents everywhere. There's people everywhere. There's animals everywhere for the, for the celebration of Passover. Every hotel is booked out. People are you know, sharing multiple people in rooms. It's, it's, it's just people everywhere. Israel's current oppressors, the Romans, 
and the religious leaders of the day, well, they've got the job of monitoring things closely. No small job monitoring perhaps a million or so people. Because if ever there was a time for a Jewish uprising against the authorities, it would be now, right? Think about it. A million plus pilgrims gathered to celebrate what God had done in delivering them from an oppressive nation. Kind of a bit of a cauldron of possibilities there. In fact, the Roman authorities are said to have increased their presence at this time in all the Jewish provinces, sending battalions of soldiers into those areas while Passover happened. And historians, uh, some historians say it's that Pilate himself, the governor of this reason, region, the one who had responsibility for keeping the peace, if you like, would have at the very similar time to Jesus entering Jerusalem, entered Jerusalem himself in full battle attire, on a war horse, with many soldiers marching with him, spears and shields shining, blazing in the sun. Why? Well, as a significant show of force, as a clear reminder to those who might be tempted to be involved in an uprising. Remember who's in charge. Remember who's in authority here. And maybe remember that it wasn't that long ago that 3,000 men were crucified who tried to start an uprising. Into that context, Jesus humbly enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, not on a war horse, not accompanied by an elite battalion of soldiers behind him and in front of him, but on a donkey. With a crowd around him who are full of all sorts of messianic expectations about him and for him, thinking he might do this or that. And we, as we read the story here, we might be tempted to think, eh, Jesus is not that impressive at first glance, is he? However, a closer look, and we might see the beauty of God's purposes unfolding before our very eyes. Have a look with me at the first few verses. What do we find here in verses 1 to 5? Let's read it again. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfil what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What do we notice here? Well, we find Jesus sovereignly giving his disciples some very specific instructions, don't we? Very specific instructions. Go to this place and you will find a donkey tied up there. Take the donkey, bring it to me. If the owner of the donkey says anything to you, this is what you're to say and so on. 
That's exactly what happened. Luke records for us the very same event, but kind of the follow-on. He's a historian, so a few more, bit more detail maybe than Matthew. So those who were sent away, sent, sorry, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owners said to him, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. I wonder, can you imagine the chat that's happening between these two disciples? They go there, and they find it, just as he told them. Can you imagine what they're saying to one another? He said it would be like this, didn't he? Right? Then, even more clearly, the owners say to them, what, what are you doing? Untying the colt. <gasps> he, said it would be, he said they would say that too, didn't he? Well, we should probably say what he told us to say then. So they told, they said, the Lord has need of it. And they let him, they let him take the donkey. Notice what we're starting to see here, even with a slightly closer look. Yes, Pilate is riding into Jerusalem as a show of force and rule. But Jesus, the one who comes in humility, is showing us, or beginning to show us at least, who's really in charge, right? He's clearly, sovereignly arranging the circumstances of his own entry into Jerusalem. Do you see that? And we're told why, verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfil what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a beast of burden. Here we see Jesus fulfilling prophecies also that are made centuries before, and it's this one from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. The king of God's people, Old Testament people is always God. Your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation, bringing salvation with him. He's humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The prophet goes on to say, or God says through him, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the Jews? No. His message is going to be peace to the nations, to the world. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The rule of this king who's coming, yes, humble on a donkey, will ultimately end up being a rule that is across the whole world. It's universal in its scope. God calls his people to rejoice, to shout aloud because of this. And again, do you notice what's going on here? Jesus is sovereignly fulfilling prophecy, which means he is in control not only of his present circumstances, hence the donkey, but history itself. History itself. Shall we compare him to Pilate again for a minute? As they both enter Jerusalem 
in very different ways. Who's really in charge? Verse 6 to 11 sees the crowd's response to Jesus coming in. They spread their cloaks on the road and others cut palm branches doing the same, the kind of thing that you would do when you're welcoming a conquering ruler into a city. And this is obviously where we get our Christian tradition of Palm Sunday from, isn't it? A day in our calendar when we are to celebrate the coming of King Jesus to bring salvation, our long-awaited deliverer and saviour, a day when we join the crowds here, crying out with joy, Hosanna, which means, Lord, save us. Lord, save us to the son of David, our Messiah. I love that new song we've been singing over the last couple of weeks. I hope you're enjoying it, called uh, There's No One Like Our God. I don't know the title that well, but the verses have been really blessing me and I love this particular stanza in it. High and holy, meek and lowly, there is no one like you, and particularly this line. Our Messiah, here beside us, there is no one like you. The crowds go before him and they're saying this very thing, aren't they? Hosanna to the son of David, our Messiah right beside us. Lord, save us, is their cry. And verse 10 tells us that the whole city, which getting back to the swelling of the crowd, can you imagine this? The whole city, verse 10, is stirred up saying, who is this? Who is this? Uh, They're not fully clear on that yet because they say this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. They've, They've registered he's a prophet, haven't quite got to the full reality of his identity. This is pretty much the question that we all need to settle, in fact. Who is this? Who is this? Is he just kind of some weak individual doing some weird thing on a donkey that really has no power? Or is he far more than that? We need to settle this question for ourselves because it will change everything for us depending on how we answer that question. Who is this? I wonder, can you imagine the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders at this point, how they're going? The whole city's stirred up. It's a, you know, boiling pot, isn't it? The ones who are charged with the responsibility of controlling things during the Passover, do you think they might be a little bit on edge? (laughs) A little bit anxious, maybe, at this moment. Remember, we saw earlier that if there was ever a time for a Jewish uprising, this is it. I reckon they might be a bit nervous. I reckon they might be thinking, mm, if we can get rid of Jesus, it should calm things down. Now, if things weren't stirred up enough, have a look at what happens next in verse 13, or 12 and 13. And Jesus entered the temple, the most sacred place in Israel's life. 
And what does he do there? He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats and those of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus calls out the spiritual corruption that lies at the heart of Israel's worship. And again, can you picture the scene? All the spiritual fervor that's there around Passover. And now Jesus, who people are identifying as the promised Messiah, is taking matters into his own hands and clearing out the temple and reaffirming and reestablishing its divine purpose. My house shall be a house of prayer. Other gospel writers says, my house shall be a house of prayer for the nations. One of the reasons that Jesus is so stirred up about this is the religious leaders have blocked up the court to the Gentiles, excluding them from access to the presence of God and the worship of God and participation in the Passover and so on. And it, Jesus is just indignant about that, that people would be excluded from relationship and interaction with God. Notice also the beauty of what Jesus does when he's in the temple. Verse 14 and 15. And the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. That's a very clear allusion to Old Testament prophecy as well. Remember when John the Baptist had that kind of moment of doubt? And he said, he sent some disciples to Jesus and he got them to ask him, are you the one or should we be looking for someone else? What did Jesus say? Go and tell him, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. Why did he say that? Well, because in Isaiah 35, that's what happens when the Messiah comes. Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. People come to him in the temple and he heals them, the lame and the blind, right in the heart of Israel's life. Here is Messiah giving us a glimpse of a completely renewed and restored creation and world as he heals these people. And notice the children. But when the chief priests and the scribes... This is so ironic. Notice, notice this. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple... Hosanna to the son of David. They were wrapped, thrilled to pieces. No, 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 they were indignant. Just such blindness, isn't it? But don't point the finger at them because we also were blind until he helped us see. But the children, well, their response is precisely what ours should be. They were crying out joyfully, Hosanna, Lord, save us. Son of David, our Messiah. I reckon the children would love that new song we've been singing here at Gosnells. 
our Messiah here beside us. Hosanna, Lord save, Lord save. Do you remember what Jesus said about coming into God's kingdom? Unless you become like a little child, you can by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And here they are, the children. They've worked it out. It's landed for them. They don't need to know every detail. They can just see that Jesus is the Messiah and they're full of joy in crying out to him. So I trust that if, you, if you're going to see Jesus clearly, you, you've recognised that you need to take a closer look because at first glance you could easily miss it, right? But when you take a closer look, wow, you might just find yourself joining the little ones and crying out for yourself, Hosanna. Lord, save me. Save me. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be great if we did that this Easter or today or today and this Easter? So two points now that we've walked our way through the passage a little bit to finish with. Two things that we see that are really clear here for us today. Firstly, Jesus is the humble king who comes to powerfully deliver us. And friends, we need to see that we are in a uniquely advanced position, advantaged position compared to the disciples at this point, aren't we? You realise that? We're in a uniquely advantaged position. Why? Well, because we know what comes next in the story. We're about to focus on it in the coming week. We know that Jesus didn't just humbly come into Jerusalem on a donkey. We know that he humbly went to the cross to deliver all who will call on him to save them. We, we know that not only did he humbly on a, come as a donkey, on a donkey as the promised king, we know that the crown that he would soon wear as king would be a crown of thorns. And that as he wore that crown in the midst of his passion, his suffering, he would powerfully, powerfully, friends, like no one else ever could, win our salvation for us, atoning for our sins, bringing us forgiveness. And we know that as at first glance the cross of Jesus... It looks weak and foolish, doesn't it? But if we take a closer look, we'll actually see the power of God at work. In the same way that Jesus on a donkey looks potentially weak and foolish, Jesus crucified on a Roman cross even more so. But a closer look. And we will see God accomplishing his finest work. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God. Have you taken a closer look lately? You know, our culture is so busy and so rushed and so frantic and frenetic. Some of it's real. Some of it might be a bit perceived. Have you taken time to slow down and take a closer look at the humble king 
who comes to powerfully deliver us. Hopefully we can do that over these next few days and then keep doing it after these next few days, reasonably regularly. Do you need to do it again? Answer, yes. Yes, you do. I do. We have the opportunity to do it this week. We have the opportunity to do it every time we gather around the Lord's table. So make sure you're here and present and slowing down and taking a closer look and remembering and realising and being gripped again by what actually was happening there. Maybe you need to take a closer look for the first time and see what's really going on. That first Easter. And maybe to come to the point of realisation that what was happening there was for you. What a great opportunity, as Tim's already reminded us, to take one of our invites and to invite a friend this week. Why? So that they might take a closer look and not continue to live life missing what actually happened there. Jesus is the humble king who comes to powerfully deliver us and secondly is the humble king who we can joyfully call upon to save us. This is the good news of the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, of Easter if you like, that whoever calls on his name, whoever cries out, Hosanna, will be heard. What does Paul say? Whoever calls on his name will be saved or rescued or redeemed. Not might be saved, not may be saved, not could be saved, will be saved. How good is that? Because of what we see here in Jesus, sovereign yet humble, coming to deliver. Because we know what comes next as he makes full atonement for our sins and defeats death for us, rising on the third day, we can joyfully and confidently call on him. It's what the children in the temple were raising to some extent. It's what we now know on the other side of the cross in its fullness. And so it's why we can do this. And I take it this is not a once-off thing. You know, when we become followers of Jesus, we call on Jesus once. That's it. Now, the Bible talks about our salvation in this way. It talks about us having been saved in the past when we become a Christian, having, uh, continuing to be saved in the present as God makes us more like Jesus and that we will be saved on the last day when we stand before him from the great judgment. So in all of those things, I reckon it's totally appropriate for us to call on him. Hosanna, Lord, save me at the beginning when I first turned to you and become a Christian. But then, Hosanna, save me from myself and grow me in the likeness of Jesus day by day for however many days you give me. And then, Hosanna, on the last day, Lord, save me on that great day that I might stand before you redeemed. Hosanna, Lord, save us. When did you last cry out with joy, either Hosanna or at least what it means? 
hope it hasn't been too long and I hope that if it has been a while, after today it won't be much longer. What a great part of your prayer life. You know, not save me all over again every time I need to become a Christian every time. No, no, Lord, just keep saving me. Keep redeeming me. Shall I stand before you? So friends, as we conclude this morning, in a moment we're going to sing the song that speaks about us seeing him in Jerusalem. We've seen him in Jerusalem this morning coming in. In, you know, what at first glance is rather unimpressive fashion. But a little closer look. And there's a lot more going on that initially meets the eye. We've seen together that he's the humble king who comes to powerfully deliver us. The humble king who we can joyfully call upon to save us. I encourage you just to bow your head. I'm not going to lead us in prayer, but just give you the opportunity to, to pray yourself. Give thanks for our humble and glorious king who has come for us. And then we're going to be led in a couple of songs to conclude our time together. So why don't you bow your head and the team will lead us in a few minutes. Thanks, guys.